Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip. Rabbi Eli Kampfer has been teaching about tefillah for decades, but this is one of my favorites. Focusing on the story of Hannah and Eli in the Tanakh, this lecture, When Prayer Reimagines Society's Power Structure, follows an extended midrash from the Talmud that explores Hannah as the model for our Amida today. But Hannah's example goes way beyond just how to say the words. Let's listen. Today, we're going to take a look at um, an example of Midrash that is actually somewhat unusual in a couple of ways. First of all, it's it's a sustained Midrashic interpretation of a section of the Tanakh that appears in the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, typically, the Talmud is not thought of uh, um, uh, as a center for Midrash, or to the extent that it is, it's a little bit snippets here and there. You'll get something, but fundamentally, the Talmud is an interpretation of the Mishnah, and the Mishnah is not really a text to be interpreted midrashically, um, whereas the Tanakh is uh, is a text to be interpreted midrashically, and in, in, in that way, the Talmud isn't really the place where you get an extended midrashic interpretation. Today, we're going to look at an exception to that rule. Uh, probably the biggest exception to that rule is... Um, is the section of Masechet Megillah that starts to go through Megillat Esther, um, sort of line by line, and um, it almost looks like it was folded into the Talmud there from another another place. It's so out of place to have an extended midrash in the Talmud, but um, but here we're going to get a, a couple pages of the Talmud that that take a story in the Tanakh, the story of Hannah, uh, the mother of the prophet Shmuel. And, uh, and do an extended interpretation there. There is a legal implication for some of the interpretations, and perhaps in that way it sort of makes sense that it's in the Talmud Bavli. Uh, but fundamentally, what they're doing is a close reading um, of the first chapter of Shmuel Aleph and, uh, and, and all the, the sort of related interpretive uh, conclusions that you can derive from a close reading of a, of a biblical text. Um, so that's just the sort of the nature of what we're taking a look at today. Again, um, the the first chapter of Shmuel Al, the story of Hannah, and the Bavli's interpretation of that. Now, in a sort of thematic way, what we're going to be able to to see is the way in which Hannah, as a worshiper, as somebody who prays, Batit Palel Hannah, um, she is one of the few characters with whom the verb Li Palel, to, which we interpret now as to pray or really probably more technically to pray the Amida. She's one of the few characters in the Bible that has that word associated with her. And we get an extended prayer of hers in the second chapter of, of Shmuel Alf, which we're not going to look at in depth. But Midrash does connect her um, sort of poetic prayer um, to the uh, to the 18 blessings of the Amida. Um, and, uh, and so this is not only an exercise in, in, in a Midrashic interpretation of a chapter of Tanakh, but also uh, an exploration of what is prayer? How does prayer function? How might we think of prayer? Uh, and to the extent that Hannah is the model of prayer, um, you know, her name is Chain, is grace, um, which is one of the main modes of tefillah, that is to say, we're asking God for grace. Um, you know, Chaim Chain Bachesed, we ask in Sim Shalom. So, um, Hannah is sort of an embodiment of how we want God to respond to us in prayer. 
And in that way, uh, sort of is the personification of what prayer is. Um, how might we think of tefillah? We might think of tefillah in the way that Hannah um, almost invents tefillah in that first chapter of Shmuelav. So that's the other piece. So piece one is, how do you read with a Midrashic lens a chapter of Tanakh? And if you're the Bavli, how do you read it? And, 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 and the other uh, piece is, how do we think about prayer and how might this Midrashic, uh, extended Midrashic interpretation help us understand prayer in a, in a new light? Okay, that's just the background. Um, I, I want to also give credit to uh, an amazing essay um, by, uh, by Tova Hartman. Um, uh, the, the name of the essay is, Are You Not a Man of God? Uh, which is a reference to Eli, the high priest, but also um, uh, sort of a critique that comes out of Hana's mouth in the Bavli. And it's in a book by the same by the same name, Are You Not a Man of God by Tova Hartman. So if you're interested in this particular selection, I highly recommend uh, her chapter in that book, um, uh, which you can you can see online. Um, okay, so let's we're gonna dive in. And what I'm gonna encourage us to do is I'm going to read um, the the chapter of um, of Shmuel Aleph, and I want you to read it with a midrashic lens. And here's 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 what I, the, this is the challenge to you. Um, what are the words that seem a little bit out of place? That seem unusual, or you would have suspected something else to be written there, or words that you could interpret in a simple manner one way. But you could also read it in another way. Um, now, this is a hard activity to do. It's doubly hard when someone is just reading you the text as opposed to sitting in the baby drosh and going over with Chavruta. But I'm, I'm going with our, uh, our, our Zoom, um, Zoom style here and just uh, going to read it with you. So, so you'll have the individual opportunity to just sort of notice things, notice things. And you can notice things also. You can question, like, like I wonder why. Um, so that's one way to do it or just to say, oh, you know, I would have expected a different word here. I'm going to note that. So I'm going to invite you to do that as we go along and just to, uh, to throw out anything that you question or notice. Um, and we're going to see as we look at the, the way that the Bobley interprets this, uh, this chapter, how many of your noticings and questionings were picked up by the Bobley. Cause for me, each noticing and questioning is valid. Um, that's a midrashic way of reading. But you can also see, based on the questions that they think are interesting, how they're also constructing when they do midrash and not just interpreting. Sometimes the rabbis have something they want to say, and sometimes they're reading a text, and usually it's both. That is to say, it's not like I'm jamming in this thing I wanted to say, and I'm going to just stick it into this text. And it's not just I'm reading the text simply for all my wonderings and noticings. I also have something to say, but it's a combination. So we're going to get to see the Bobley's sort of take on this parak, on this chapter, um, you know, a, 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 in contrast to your own take and questions, um, which I'm going to say are all valid. So let's start off the story of Hannah and, uh, and the birth of Shmuel. Bayhi ish echad min haramataim sofim. Mehar Ephraim, Ushmo El Kana, Ben Yerocham, Ben Elihu, Ben Tochu, Ben Tzuf, Ephrati. Okay, so this is just verse one, 
Now, there's a lot of names here. So this is where like the translation doesn't really help you, probably hurts you. Um, I sort of uh, changed the translation to just reflect the names. There was a man, Ishechad. There was one man from Ramataim Sofim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Yerocham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, or Tohu rather, son of Tzuf, an Ephrati, an Ephraimite. Okay, now, I'm just doing this as a microcosm. We're not going to go this slow. But if you're reading this for shot, if you're reading this contextually and just for like, let me get the main idea, it's like, there's a guy named Elkanah. <laughs> Let's move on, okay? He was whatever. He lived somewhere. He's part of a tribe. Everybody's got a family history. But if you're looking at the words, just, uh, um, and I haven't seen this. This is not, this is something that I'm noticing, not, not that the Bobley's noticing. You'll take a look at the, at the nature of some of these words. Not all of them, but some of them. Ramataim Sofim, right? He's from a place called Ramataim Sofim. What is Rama? Rama is up high, right? La room, to raise up. And Sofim is to see, like Harat Sofim, Mount Scopus, Scopus, like to see. What are you seeing from, from Mount Scopus? You're seeing, you know, Harabai. You're seeing the other mountain where the temple is. Um, so you have a person who is from a place of height and from a place of seeing, Ramataim Sofim. And then you get, he's not just from Ephraim, but he's from Har Ephraim, from the mountain of Ephraim. So there's a real sense of like height. And when you have the high ground, you're able to see something. Okay. And, and he, even his ancestor is named Suf. Uh, to look, right? To, to watch, to uh, to see, Sofim. Um, so he is. he lives in a place where he can see very well from a high point, uh, a mountain or a high place. And he's even from a person whose name was seeing, okay? So you're expecting this man to be able to see. Um, now we're gonna, let, let's hold on to this idea of, of, of high and height as we move through, okay? We can't go this slow because otherwise we won't get to Bobby at all. But just giving you an example of how you might read a sentence midrashically as opposed to reading it for pshat. If you're reading it for pshat, you're like, there's a guy, he lived in this place, he had a lineage. But now we're looking at the names and names in the Bible are significant, both of places and of people. And so we're trying to sort of build something up here. Okay, let's move on a little bit faster. Right now we get the plot. There are two wives. One is named Chana. She's named first. And the second is named Pnina. Um, Pnina had children. Chana did not have children. Okay, now just notice you've got in the word, if, if I was arguing in verse one, we've got heights and seeing. In verse three, you've got going up. Ve'alah, he would go up. Pilgrimage word, but literally also moving up. He would go go up from his his city where he was living um, to worship uh, Adonai Tzavot in Shiloh. Shiloh is the, the, the precursor to Jerusalem. Uh, and we're gonna see, if you just look at the words um, Shin Lamed Hey, it is pronounced Shiloh. You can also pronounce it another way, Shela, hers, um, which is, would be another 
that would be a midrashic way to read this. I'm not saying we're going there yet, but that's where they go to make a sacrifice. And there, Visham Shnei Bnei Eli. Now, this is interesting. Instead of getting Eli, who's the main character, the high priest, we are introduced to the place by the children of Eli, the Bnei Eli, Sham Bnei Eli. Um, okay. Who are they? Chofni and Pinchas, Kohanim Ladonai. So you see both going up, Allah, the name of the high priest is Height, Eli, right? Not Eli, my name is double than Allah, but Eli with an iron is like El Al, you know, up in the heights. Um, so again, another person who is of vaunted status, presumably can see better from his position. Uh, but as we know, he's not going to see Hannah very well. Uh, and he has, he's not, and, and we get the idea of children, Banim. Okay. So they made this sacrifice and Elkanah would give to Penina and to her children one portion. Apayim is a little bit, uh, okay, so, so Manot, sorry, we give them portions, presumably one per person. But for Chana, he would give perhaps a double portion. It's depending on how you translate Apayim. Here in the uh, JPS, they do not translate it as double, but you could imagine a double portion. Sort of makes sense. Gives Chana a double portion. Why? Because he loves Chana. Even though Adonai Sagar Rachma. Why did God close her womb? Not clear. That could be a Midrashic question. But even though God had, had closed off her womb, Eli loves Chana. Not only is Chana barren, but her tsara, the, the, which is a technical term, it's your co-wife, but the one who troubles you, would make her angry, make her miserable, would taunt her because God had closed her womb. So what happens year after year, they go up to make the sacrifice. Again, you have the la'alot word. And every year, Penina would harass Chana. And every year, Chana would cry and would not eat. Okay, so there's some sort of, to the extent that depression can be, uh, you know, given physical expression, the crying and the not eating seems to indicate Chana's state of mind and her sort of emotional state. Okay, let's move on a little bit. So Elkanah says to his wife, Why are you crying? Why aren't you eating? Why are you so sad? Am I not better to you than 10 sons? I would put this in the in the top five examples of men not seeing women, right? Not seeing the problem, despite the fact that he's from a guy named Soup and he lives in a place that's up high and he's from Sophie. He does not see that she is suffering, um, that she wants a child. And yes, Elkanah, you are not better than 10 children, uh, than 10 sons. Um, and, uh, and, and what is Hannah's response to his question? Absolutely nothing. Right? Chana does not have a voice 
so far in this um, in this chapter. Okay, um, let's see what happens next. Vatakum chana chare ochla b'shilo v'achare shato ve'li akolein yoshev al kisei al mezuzade chal Hashem. Now this is an amazing scene. Chana gets up after they had eaten and and drunk at Shiloh. Remember, when you sacrifice, you get to eat the meat uh, for some sacrifices. And so they had sort of like a big gathering, a big meal, which also included wine after drinking. And Eli was sitting on the seat near the doorpost of the temple of Hashem. Okay, so we get a scene in which Chana stands up from the party. Eli is somehow in the scene. He's going to notice her. He's going to watch her. And just the encounter between Hana, who is the lowest member of society on a status level, right? She is the second wife who doesn't have any children. Eli, and, and, and is a woman, Eli is the highest level of, of society. He is a high priest. He is a man. He has children. We've already met them earlier on. And they're going to somehow encounter each other. This is a very unlikely pairing to begin with here. Okay, um, what happens? Um, so Eli's in the background now, but now we get more description of Chana. Vihi marat nafesh. She is a bitter, uh, bitter soul, literally, or wretchedness, as they translate JPS. Vatipalel al Adonai, tifke. She prayed al Adonai. I'm noticing here that what word would you have expected? Not al Adonai, but rather el Adonai. She prayed to God. We don't get to God. We've get we've got on God. We already know the word al is a light motif in this chapter. We've got Ali. We've got you know Allah as a verb. They go up every year, um, and so we get again this conjunction al, which you might have expected to be L, and maybe it's drawing our eye to the fact that the word al or the shoresh al is a big part of this chapter. But either way, it sounds a little weird. I prayed about God, on God, right? Okay, they translate it. If you just read the English, she prayed to God. So they're not, they're not making any, any bones about this, but I'm, I'm raising it because it's going to be something that the Talmud picks up on. Uba and she cries. Okay, so right now, notice, Batipaleo, when she prays, there is no description of what that prayer is. It's just she does it, then she cries, then she's going to make a vow that does come with words, because you cannot vow without actually saying something. So let's see what the vow is. Batidor neder batomar, Adonai tzivaot, im raotir eh there's again our word, al rosho, lo ya'ale al. Okay? So she makes a vow, which is kind of an incomprehensible vow. In a little bit, it's like the Rumpelstiltskin in reverse, you know, of like, if you give me a child, if you look upon my suffering and remember me and not forget me, and if you grant me a, 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 a male child, then I will dedicate that child to Hashem all the days of his life. He will be a Nazir. Um, he, no razor shall ever touch his head, but literally shall, shall not go up upon his head. And again, you have the, the going up. Okay, so that's her vow. And then 
Vehaya, here Betali Palel, as she continued to go on and pray, to, to really pile it on, Harbe, a lot, Lifnei Hashem. Now you've got Lipalel, Lifnei Hashem, not Al Hashem, before God. Beili Shomeripia, and Eli was watching her mouth. Vichana, he midaberet aliba, rak svatea naot, vikola lo yishamea, vayach shavea eli lishikora. So, what was happening? This is the famous line. Chana was praying al liba. Again, you have the word al. We would say in modern Hebrew, el liba, um, to her heart, but al liba, she was praying on her art, about her art. Again, the word al here is functioning in some way. Um, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard, lo yishamea. And so Eli thought that she was drunk. Now, just Eli is a, is a character that you would want to read uncharitably. But I want to just put one word in for Eli here. You know who Eli's ancestors are? Right? He's a high priest. So he's from the family of Aaron. Do you remember what happened to the family of Aaron? Nadav and Avihu bring strange fire before God in that, in that opening scene of the, of the Mikdash back in the desert. And right following that scene where they bring strange fire and are consumed, um, we get the laws of you're not allowed to serve in the temple drunk. So the Midrash makes a connection and claims that Nadav and Avihu, this is one Midrash, there are other traditions as well, uh, that Nadav and Avihu were drunk when they brought the, the strange fire. So perhaps Eli is sort of like, his, he both is shocked that someone could come to the Mikdash and be drunk, and he has a little bit of trauma of his relatives who, when they were drunk, got consumed by fire. Um, and so he's got a lot riding on the sobriety of the temple. Um, okay, so he says, uh, Eli speaks to uh, Hana and says, Ad matai tishtakrin. Right? How long are you going to be drunk? Remove your wine from you or from on you. Now we get Chana finally saying something to another person, which we haven't had yet. No, my lord, I am a shat ruach. I am a. I have a rough. I have a hard spirit. Um, I'm in a rough place. But I haven't drunk any wine or, or alcohol. Rather, I'm just pouring my soul out before Hashem. Interesting connection between pouring wine and pouring soul. Don't take your maidservant for a worthless woman. Meaning has nothing. Again, you have the al here. Um, rather, I have only been speaking all this time out of my great anguish and distress. Okay, and then we get the end of the scene of the dialogue. Go in peace. May God, the God of Israel, give your Shela. Now, this is interesting because you would expect the word to be she'ela with the aleph in the middle, but you just got shin lamed, which is read to be she'ela, your request. But it's interesting that it's she'ela, 
Shilo, all those words are wrapped up in the in the word without the olive in the middle of the root. Asher Sha'alt Meimo, that you ask from God. Okay, so Eli gives Hannah a blessing. May your prayers be answered. Um, okay. Vatomer, uh, your most kind to your handmaiden. May you find grace. Um, uh, may your handmaiden, i.e. me, Hannah, may I find grace in your eyes. Now she finally eats and she was no longer downcast, okay? So that's sort of the end of this particular scene where we are in terms of the interaction between Eli and, uh, and Hannah. Okay, we're, we're gonna, we may come back to the end of the chapter. Um, uh, but let's let's for now jump into the Bavli. So the Bavli is again interested in the halachic implications of this scene, and that's where it's going to start. But as we're going to see as we read the Midrash, there is again unusual for the Bavli. We know the Bavli is a mix of rabbis from across different generations. We're actually going to see a dominant voice in these Midrashim, which is Rabbi Elazar. Uh, Rabbi Elazar ben Pedat, who is the student of Rabbi Yochanan, um, who is a uh, uh, second century Amora in, in Eretz Israel, And he sort of is, you could see he's sort of captured, captivated by this parak, and he's going to offer some sustained interpretation as he goes along. Zera Anashim. What is that talking about? Um, what's the relationship between a neder and a, and a, and a tefillah, a vow and a, a, a prayer? What is prayer? Now we're in Brachot chapter five. Uh, this is this is one of the chapters of Masachet Brachot that deals with the Amida. What is the nature of the Amida? How should we say the Amida? Previous chapter was when should we say the Amida? So let's start off with um, with the Halachot. Amara Vamnuna Kama Yilchata Gevirta Ika Lemashma Mehani Karai Dechana. How many important laws Halachot? Gedolot, can we learn from the verses related to Chana? Now he's going to take some of them. Remember, we saw this. So now, Rav Hamnuna, not Rabbi Elazar, Rav Hamnuna is going to interpret these verses and says, Chana was speaking about her heart, on her heart, from her heart. Again, that strange conjunction, al. We had that with Ali, Palel, Al Hashem. Uh, so now we're going to derive Mikan. That's a technical word, which means from here, we derive a law. From here, the, the one who says the Amida, they have to have Kavana about their heart. Their heart has to be directed. Okay, so he's focusing on Liba, not on the word Al so much. Mikan, again, a, a derivation, a halachic derivation, the Palel. You have to actually move your lips when you say the Amida. I came from a show where it was called the silent Amida. Then I went to another show where Michael Rosenberg translated it as the whispered Amida, which is the more accurate translation because you're actually moving your lips. Um, but her voice was not heard. Here, it, we derive that you're you're not allowed to raise your voice in your tefillah, or in some versions, some manuscripts, it says lashmiya kolot to cause your voice to be heard in your tefillah. Okay, so you, you move your lips, but you don't 
you know, your Amida isn't heard. This is all halachic derivation of how we recite the Amida. Why is Chana the model for the Amida? Because she prays. She does, she recites the Amida in the rabbinic understanding of the word Lipalel. Okay, now um, we're going to get one more, uh, one more halachic derivation. Eli sees this and says to her, how long are you going to be drunk? So now we got Rabbi Elazar. Rabbi Elazar says, Mikan hagun If you see in your in your friend something that's not proper, something that is unseemly, You have to do. You have to reprove them. You have to actually um, do some sort of critique. Okay. Um, so. This, I think, and, and, and Tov Arvin makes this very clear, is another aspect to tefillah. If all the things that we learned above about Chana were going to inform the way we recite tefillah, now we're getting a hint that there's something about tefillah that also inc- includes tochacha, some sort of critique, some sort of admonishment. Um, now, it's true, the admonishing at first starts with Eli. But as we're going to see the way in which the Midrash understands the dialogue between Chana and Eli, Eli starts off by admonishing Chana, but Chana is going to come back and admonish Eli. Okay, so there's a sort of um, a critique element that is going to be connected to the environment of prayer. This is not something we often think about with prayer, where we think of request or praise, but the critique is something that we're going to see uh, emerge uh, as a feature of tefillah, um, where Hana is going to embody this and sort of turn Eli's critique on its head and fire back not only at Eli, but also at God. Okay, so that's where we're headed. We're headed to a place in which um, uh, in which uh, Hana is the actor. Her prayer is not just a request, but also a critique. And the objects of her critique are not only the human power structure of Eli and the high priest, but also the heavenly power structure of God, God's self, which puts her in some unusual company of Elijah and Moshe, of people willing to critique God in their uh, in their prayers. Okay, so let's get a little bit of this so we can see how this works. First, starting with her critique of Eli. Okay, so this is, again, back in verse uh, in verse 15. Um, we've got uh, uh, the, the accusation of Eli. How long are you going to be drunk? And Chana responds in the pshat of the text, in the simple reading of the text of, no, no, my Lord, you've got it all wrong, right? I'm just Ishak Shadruach Hanofi. I'm just a woman who's having a, a horrible emotional uh, situation. I, I'm not drunk. Lo Adoni. But let's see how um, uh, Ula reads, uh, reads this. Amar Ula. Or perhaps Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Hanina says, Amrala, lo, Amrale, she says to Eli, lo adon ata badavar ze. Lo adoni, not, no, my master, but rather, you are not my master. Lo adonata, you are not the adon badavar ze. You do not have the ability to understand what's going on here. You're not my Lord in this matter. 
And not only that, you don't have any divine um, presence resting upon you. you. You don't have a special status. You, the high priest, do not have a special status when it comes to figuring out the inner workings of my heart. You can't suspect me in this matter. Lo Adoni, lo, you are not my Adon. Okay, which is an amazing Midrashic read. That is not what it means in the context of the Bible. That's only when you read it as Hannah responding to the critique with a critique of her own. Um, then we get another version of the same of the same one. Lo Adon Ata, the Shechina and the Holy Spirit, Shechina Beruach Hakodesh, they're not with you. Um, that you take a heart uh, that you take in that you take the harsher and not the more lenient view of my conduct. Lo dantani You should have been judging me with some sort of mercy, with some benefit of the doubt, but you you don't. You didn't. Mi lo yadata Don't you know? Don't you remember? I am Chana. I come here every year. This is who I am. Haven't you seen me here before? Right? You don't have the right to judge me harshly. You don't have the right to make negative assumptions about me. Okay? Now, this is a very different Chana than the Chana who appears in the Tanakh. And this is part of the, the magic of the Midrash, which is, it does notice, Lo Adoni, right? That is a phrase that could be read as, no, my master, but could be read in other ways as they're reading it here. And then it turns Chana into an actor. And not just somebody who's like, no, 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 you got the wrong story. Please, please, you know, uh, judge me correctly. Um, you know, find favor in, in, you know, may I find favor in your eyes, but rather an attack on Ailey, which is just warming up to um, to an attack that she's going to be, to be making on the, on the next power structure, which is God. Um, okay. Um, let's, uh, let's read a little bit more. Um, here, let's skip down a little bit. Uh, now they're going to back up a couple verses. You remember Hannah, she prays, but then she makes a vow. Uh, actually, John was asking, what's the connection between a, a vow and a prayer? Now here's something that you gotta, you gotta, you gotta give credit to these guys. Rabbi Elazar notices that Adonai Tzivaot, Lord of hosts, Lord of armies, okay? That is a common name of God. You know, we know it from the Kedusha, right? From Isaiah. Kadosh, 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 Adonai Tzivaot. It's not an unusual name of God. However, a great Midrashic pastime is to notice when a common word or a common phrase shows up for the very first time. This is the very first time that a person calls God Adonai Tzivaot. We had God called Adonai Tzivaot by the narrator earlier on, but this is the very first time that a person, a character in the Bible, calls God Adonai Tzivaot. Now, once you notice this is the first time, you can start to make a midrash about it. Okay, so it's only weird. Adonai Tzivaot is only open to be interpreted um, when you notice how unusual it is in the context of the order of the Bible. This is the first time we see that phrase coming out of someone's mouth. So Amar Rabbi Elazar, Miyom Shebara HaKadosh Baruch Olamo, 
לא היה אדם שקראו לקדוש ברוך הוא צבעות עד שבת החנה. הוא קרא תות צבעות. From the whole beginning of time until now, nobody ever called God Adonai צבעות. Now you have to ask yourself, what is צבעות? What is it adding to call God Adonai צבעות as opposed to just Adonai, Yudei Vavhe? Well, צבא, what are God's armies? You know, when I was growing up and they would like, you would read the English and it says, Lord of hosts. And I always had in my mind, like, he game show hosts, like Bob Barker. You know, that was sort of my picture of hosts. What does it mean, hosts? It's actually, it means army, like Svag and Al Israel, right? So, what is God's army? The army of God are the stars, right? That's the, the if you were going to look at the heavens as, as a sort of battle formation, I'm not saying that the sun is God, but if you're going to pick a bright spot of the sun, the stars are much less bright, and those are the armies that are... Um, That are, that are showing up here. So, let's see. Amra Chana Lutnei HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Ribona Shalomam. Mikol tzivei tzivaot shebarata be'olamecha. Kasheh be'einecha shetitain li ben'echad. This is an amazing sentence. Ribona Shalomam, master of the universe. From all of the tzivei tzivaot, all the armies and armies, all the hosts and hosts, all the heavenly bodies that you've created in your world, Is it really too hard for you to give me one son? Like, this is not a big lift here, okay? So in the name of God that Hannah calls God in her prayer, wrapped up in that name, says Rabbi Elazar, is a critique of God. Come on, God. Adonai Tzavod, you're in charge of the whole hosts of the world, of the universe. Can't you give me a child? Okay? And then we get a mashal, which is a different kind of midrash. It's a midrash on a midrash. Okay, I'm going to give you a parable. Mashal What's it like? To a king who made a feast for his servants. And a poor man came and stood by the door and said to them, give me a bite. And no one took any notice of him. So he forced his way into the presence of the king and said to him, your majesty, Out of all the feasts which you've made, is it so hard in your eyes to give me one bite of food, right? We, we can imagine the scene. There's so much plenty that's here. There's so much um, uh, sustenance that's available to other people. But why am I being ignored, okay? I'm the poor person who's going to shove his way into the king. You can't, that's harder to imagine, right? We can imagine the exclusion scene. But fighting your way in, standing right before the king and saying, come on, can't you spare me a piece of bread? That's what Hannah is doing. Okay. So this is the first critique that Hannah is making towards God. If, if the previous critique was towards Eli, the high priest, lo adon badavarza, you're not my master in this matter. You can't understand how I feel. Now we get a situation where Hannah is critiquing God for not granting her a very simple thing, a child, as opposed to, I'm not asking you to create the heavens, just give me a child, okay? Give me, I'm not asking for the whole, I'm not asking for a seat at the banquet, I'm just asking for a little bit of food, okay? Prusachat, give me one, one slice. Okay, so now Hana is critiquing God. Now, <laughs> now we're getting daring, okay? We're going to the next level. Um, uh, Imra'o tir'et. 
Um, this again, uh, taking taking that um, uh, that line from from the story. Amari Elazar. So again, our 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 midrashic hero here, Rabbi Elazar says, Amra Baruchu. Well, hold on. Um, hold on. Let's let's take a look at the background text. We have to understand one other text to, to get this one. Okay, we just read this in Parsha Shavuot. This is the story of the of the Sota. The Sota is the woman who is suspected of being uh, unfaithful to her husband. It's it has its own troubling uh, issues, which we're not going to dive into here. But I want us to just read this from a contextual standpoint so we can understand the Midrash Rabbi Lazar is about to do, which, which is kind of amazing. It's head spinning. So let's just get the background of the Sota here. Um, so we've got the law. Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, speak to the Israelites, say to them, any man whose wife may stray and betray his trust and a man lie with her in seed coupling, shichvat zera, and it be concealed from her husband's eyes and she hide and be defiled with no witness against her and she herself be not apprehended. I'm sorry for the old, old English translation here. This is the old Sabsino translation. So what happens? A woman who is married to a man has a liaison with another man, but nobody saw it happen. So how do you accuse your wife of being unfaithful to you? A spirit of jealousy may overcome him, the original husband, and he'll be jealous about his wife, with she being defiled, or a spirit of jealousy may overcome and he'll be jealous about his wife and she not be defiled. Meaning the husband might suspect her and she might have committed the crime, but she might not have committed the crime. There's no witness, there's no evidence. So how do we know if she was unfaithful to her husband? So how does it work? Well, the Torah gives us the solution, which is the, the sota drink. So she is meant to drink this particular drink, which is going to reveal whether she was faithful or not. You shall make the woman drink the bitter besetting water, may hamarim hamarim, the cursed water, and the bitter besetting water shall enter her. The priest shall take the woman from the woman's hand the grain offering of jealousy, minchat hakinaot, meaning the husband was jealous. This is the grain offering that goes along with it. Bring it before Hashem and bring it forward to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful from the grain offering, its token, turn it to smoke on the altar and make the woman drink the water. Okay, so it's a ritual where there's an offering and she drinks this water, which is going to reveal whether or not she was faithful or not. Once he has made her drink the water, it shall come about that if she had defiled and betrayed her husband's trust, then the meha marima marim, then this, this, uh, this cursed water will enter her as bitter marim, and her belly will swell, and her thigh and her thigh sag, and the woman shall become a curse in the midst of her people. Okay, so the sign of whether you were unfaithful is that your belly will distend. Okay, but the imalonit isha, if she has not defiled herself, if she's only been suspected but is actually innocent of the crime, utelrai, but she's pure, vinikta vinizra zera. She will be clean, naki, and she will be sown with seed. She will apparently be able to have a child. Okay. Now, this, from a midrashic standpoint, it's not clear what Benizra Azera is doing here, right? If the whole thing is you drink the water, and if the water distends your belly, then you're guilty. But if the water doesn't distend your belly, then you're pure. 
That's it. What is the issue of Benizra'ah Zera? And you shall have a child. You shall be sown with seed. What's going on there? Okay, so this is what Rabbi Elazar is noticing elsewhere. And now he's going to bring it back to our story. And it's kind of amazing how he's going to use it. Okay, so let's see how he uses the story here with Hannah um, figuring out how she's going to get a child. So I'm going back to page five. Okay. If, if you shall surely see, I'm on the bottom, page five. Rabbi Eliezer, uh, Rabbi Elazar, uh, Amar Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Elazar has another Midrash. Amra Chana Lifnei HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Chana says before God, Ribono Shalom, Im Ra'o, if you see, good, right? If you if you see my uh, my state and you give me a child, then great, we're, we're fine. Vim love, but if not, tier et. So now the midrash that's at, at at functioning here is, which is a favorite midrashic move, is If you see, yes, see. If you surely see, is how it's translated in JPS. But there's a doubling of the verb ra'ah. Why does it need to double the verb? So the way that Rabbi Lazar reads it is If you see me and give me a child, fine. But if not, tir watch, watch what I'm going to do. Elech, I will go. And I will um, shut myself up before, uh, with another man, before my husband, Elkanah. So he'll get jealous and suspicious. And as I shall have been alone, right, when, since I went, went in uh, and did a suspicious act, they're going to make me drink these special waters of sota of this of the suspected wife, um, and of course I didn't I wasn't unfaithful, so I will be found innocent. And what does your Torah say? Venikta zera. You you will be made clean. She will be made clean, and she will have a child. Right. That's how she's going to force God's hand to give her a child. And you can't make your Torah nothing, right? You can't make it a plus there. You can't make it like a, a useless object. You have to fulfill what it says in the Torah, which says, if she's innocent, that's how she's going to force God's hand to have a child. Okay? So you have like a double layering of Midrashic work here. They notice, there's a doubling of the word see. And what is God seeing? God is going to see her pretend to be uh, a, a, an unfaithful woman in order to trigger the innocent option, which will lead her not only to be pure, but also Benizra Azera. She'll also have a child. Okay. Now that is a very daring move for somebody who is powerless, the lowest level of society, not even speaking for much of the interaction here, for Hana to take agency here and not only to talk down uh, to Eli and tell, and put him in his place about what he sees and doesn't see, but also about God and say, you have to give me a piece of bread. How hard is it for you to give me a child? And not only that, I'm going to use your own laws against you. I'm going to pretend to be a, a, um, a an unfaithful woman. And when I'm found to be not guilty, then I'm going to have to have a child because that's what it says in your Torah. This makes Hannah a much more radical character than we see in the Tanakh, okay? 
So um, this goes on a little bit further. So let's let's see a little bit uh, a little bit more. Um, uh, I'm going to go down to okay. Vichana midaberet al liba. Remember, we had this uh, this wondering uh, for those following along on the bottom of page seven. Vichana midaberet al liba. Hana is um, uh, speaking about her heart. Um, by, we also had by Bidpalel al Adonai. So Amar Belazar, there's our Rebbe Lazar again. Now he's quoting a tradition he has. Mishum Rebbe Yossi Ben Zimra, al Iskeliba. What does al Liba mean? Now it's not Kavana, that was what we saw earlier on. That has to be Yechaven uh, Libo, it has to be your heart. When you pray, you have to use your heart. Rather about the matters of her lave, but the lave is actually the physical body part. Al liba, amra lifanav, ribono shalola, master of the universe. Kol mashebarata biisha lo barata davarachad lebatala. Whatever you created in a woman physically, when you when you created a woman, whatever you created physically, you didn't make any of it for nothing. Right, eyes to see, ears to hear, uh, a nose to smell, a mouth to speak, which for Chana is very significant. Hands to do work, and legs to walk on them, and and breasts and, and nipples in order to give suck to, through them, right, to suckle. Dadim alalu shenatata al libi. Lama? Lola anikbahem? Tainli bang la anikbahem. Right? I run through my body. And I'm going to tell you that you made all the parts of my body for a reason. And now I'm getting to the, the part of my body that is not being put to use. Right? To my breasts. And why did you create my breasts? Wasn't it in order to suckle a child? That's the function, right, of this particular part of the body, as Khan is claiming. So give me a child so that I'll use the body. So again, Chana is sort of coming up with all different types of reasons why God must give her a child, right? Um, You are a creator who creates so many things. Can't you just give me one thing? there's a, you know, there's a line in your Torah that says, if I'm innocent of, from being a suspicious woman, that I will have a child. So I'm going to force your hand to give me a child. Or you made me with my body. My body is meant in order to suckle a child. Can't you see to it that I use my body for that purpose? This is something that is so out of character with the Chana of the Bible. But Rabbi Elazar really sort of... Um, invents a different Chana, the Chana who is um, an agent and one who is critiquing the power structures of her world. She's critiquing her husband um, to some extent, uh, meaning by not participating in his, oh, aren't I better you than 10 sons? But she's critiquing Eli and she's critiquing God. And in that way, um, she is really alternating or reorienting what prayer is about. When Chana prays, she is getting revved up 
to offer critiques of the power structures that be. And in that way, this is an unusual definition of prayer from an unusual source. Hana, we think of as the person who told us how to say the Amina with your lips moving, but not out loud. But now we're also getting a characterization of the Amina. It's also something, praying is something in which you offer critique. Okay, let's see one last example of this. Again, Rabbi Elazar, Vamar Rabbi Elazar, Chana hiticha dvarim klape mala. Chana prayed insolently towards heaven, um, like threw things towards heaven, literally. Shenemar batipalel al Adonai. Now we get the interpretation of the al as it relates to God. Al Adonai, not El Adonai. She's praying al. And they're reading that milamed she varim klape mala. She she is doing something towards towards heaven, uh, and in that way is critiquing God. It's not a simple may you please give me a child, but rather I'm actually being somewhat insolent, as we saw in these stories uh, that Rabbi Azar introduced us to. I'm forcing your hand. Uh, we get another example of somebody who was hitiach varim klape mala amar Azar Eliyahu. Also, Elijah was hitiach tvarim klape mala. Um, and uh, a little bit further in the same Gemara, we get Moshe also is hitiach tvarim klape mala. So Elijah and Moshe might be thought of as sort of, certainly have more power in the society, also have more sort of famous worshiping. But Chana is right there with them in terms of her status and her understanding of what prayer is. And maybe as a way of sort of ending ending this, this theme of Chana as, taking a stand as what's related to prayer. I just want to look at one last verse with you back in the, in the Tanakh text. Now, after she makes this whole, in- this scene with Eli and she makes her, uh, her vow, I'm in verse 21, on top page three. So the next year, um, after she has the child, Shmuel, So they go back to Shiloh. It's their time to go make their offering. And they go up. Vichana, but in verse 22, Vichana, lo alata. But Chana did not go up. She is not playing the game this year. Ki amra isha ad yigamel hanar. I want to wait until my child is weaned before I go back to there. So what you see here is, again, I think there are tiny, tiny hints of agency with Chana in the, in the actual text. But here's one of them you might gloss over is that Hana does not go up, even though everybody else in the family goes up and Elkanah is going up and it's the place to go up to. Hana is going to go up, but on her own time now, only when she's ready for this child to be brought to, to the temple again. Um, now, of course, the end of the story is that Eli, his child, uh, his children, who we met in the in the beginning of the story, Chofni and Pinchas, they are going to bring down, uh, they are corrupt priests, and they're going to bring down the house of Eli. And Chana gives birth to one of the most wonderful and famous uh, Nevi'im, one of the most wonderful prophets um, of, of Jewish history. That's the result of her prayer. Um, so what we have here is an example where being being a little insolent, fighting against the power structures, 
actually gets Chana somewhere. Um, she takes agency and her prayer is answered, not only in that she gets a child, but that the powers that be, Eli and God, are both sort of more oriented to the way in which she's seeing the world, which is a not what you would have expected um, from a character who's pretty low on the totem pole of society when she starts off. Um, okay, so I hope what we were able to see here today is an example of a close reading of a chapter of Tanakh, the way the Bavli, or more specifically one rabbi in the Bavli, Rabbi Elazar, um, takes a character who in the Tanakh seems fairly pliant uh, and turns her into a very strident uh, and demanding, in a wonderful way, worshiper, and perhaps gives us a view of prayer of tefillah that's not only about um, uh, a position of uh, request and praise, but also a position of trying to demand things to be right in society uh, as they relate to me, the worshiper, and as they relate to all of us as we live in the society. Our producers for this episode are Sam Greenberg and Jeremy Tabak. Thank you to Nadav Remez for editing this episode with additional editing by David Chabinsky. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It's been a pleasure to learn with you.